I'm having a hard time imagining why he called that Sunday school teacher goofy. Uh, Would you open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 8? Romans chapter 8. If you are using the Pew Bibles provided, that's page 974. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Broke my watch, so it'll be in your best interest if I have some kind of a clock up here. I don't know exactly how it happened. It just kind of fell off. We've been studying through Romans chapter 8 for uh, several weeks now, verse by verse, through this chapter. And today we're going to study the last section, the last subsection of this chapter. But verse 31 begins with, what shall we then say to these things? And that's because the end of Romans chapter 8 is a summary statement of the entirety of the uh, doctrinal section of the book of Romans. Romans as a whole is broken into three parts. Romans chapters 1 through 8 are the great doctrines of the Christian faith, the teachings of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a human being, what it is God's done, and why he's done it. Romans 9 through 11 is kind of a parenthetical postscript about how that applies to the Old Testament with the nation of Israel and the Gentile nations. And then 12 through 16 says, what will we do then? So in the Bible, God never begins by saying, this is what you need to do. He always begins by saying, this is who you are. So the Bible never says, be holy so that you can be a saint. The Bible says, you're a saint so you need to be holy. So Romans 1 through 8 is this massive freight train of thought about who we are in Christ. Chapter 1 begins with this concept of Gentiles. That's you if you're not a Jew. Gentiles are sinners because we've violated our own conscience. You've done things that you would get mad at other people for doing, so you are a sinner. Romans 2 says that Jews are sinners because they violated the direct commandment of God. They had the Old Testament, they had God's law, and they ignored it. Chapter 3 says, so in light of that, we are all sinners. Chapter 4 says, well, what about those who were pleasing to God? And with the example of Abraham says that those who were pleasing to God were always pleasing to God by faith. Chapter 5 then explains how that works, how God moved us from the realm of sin and transferred our citizenship to the realm of faith. Chapter 6 begins with a question, what shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? If we're saved by grace, does that mean I should just do whatever I want? And Paul says, no, may it never be. May genitoi, God forbid in the King James, but absolutely not. How shall we that are dead to sin continue to live in it? His answer is not, no, we can't continue to sin for more grace because if you keep sinning, you're going to lose your salvation. That's not what he says. He says, how can we who have been separated from sin, how could we continue to live in the muck and the mire of it? How could we who have been freed as slaves go back willingly into slavery? Then in chapter 7, he talks about this battle that we face. He says, on one hand, you've got this new creation of God inside of you. On the other hand, you continue to live in the world of sin. God's moved your citizenship, 
but you still, you still feel like you're in the old world. You still feel sin everywhere. He says uh, famously, the good that I would do, that I do not do. He says the good things that I want to do, I don't do those. And then he says, and the, that which I would not do, the things that I don't want to do, the sins that I don't want to commit anymore, that I do. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed this experience in your life that there are things that you don't want to do as a Christian, but you still find yourself sucked into them? And there are things that you say, you know, I really ought to do that. And yet you find sin pulling you away from it. That's the war of your old nature and your new nature. You stand between two worlds. You stand behind between the world that's passing away and also its lusts, that's how 1 John says it, and the world that God's bringing in but is not fully here yet. You feel that tension every day. Maybe you've never had the theological terminology to put to it, the already but not yet tension, the, the fact that the end of time has come in Jesus, but it hasn't completed yet. You feel that the kingdom of God is at hand, and yet we still stand in this world. You feel that tension in chapter 7. Chapter 8 then picks up and says, well, the end of chapter 7, who shall deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. (laughs) Who will deliver me from this death? I thank God that Jesus will. Chapter 8, verse 1, give us the title for our series. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. There's no condemnation for us if we're in Jesus because we are on our way out. Romans 8 then has dealt with this new creation theology, this idea that God has made a new world and is making a new world, that this new world is being birthed in our midst right now, and that its coming is certain. In the end, uh, the verses that we studied last week, we read, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestine to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestine, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. We saw that if you are in Christ... God knew you before the world was. He made it your destiny to be just like Jesus, and all things work together for that good. All things work together to bring you to glory. So then the end of Romans 8, again, begins with a question. What shall we say then to these things? What's your response to this? You may have a couple of objections. You may say, well, Couldn't there be something that would stop this process? Couldn't there be something that could get in the way? And Paul's going to really pose two of those to us today. So I'm going to read verses 31 through 39 to you, and then we're going to look at them piece by piece. He says, What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress 
or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word. We thank you that you've preserved this letter for us for almost 2,000 years, that we can come and we can read your promise, Father, that you are for us. And if you are for us, then no one can be against us. If you are on our side, then there can be no opposition. So we think, Father, here in your word, about what, who could come between us and your plan for us, who could come between us in glory, and we realize that the answer is no one, Father. We ask that we would be moved to faith alone in you, that we would trust you even more. When we look, God, and we ask what circumstances could separate us from your love, and we realize no circumstance, Father, then I ask that we would be able to live above our circumstances, that we would not be caught up in the here and the now, but that we would set our eyes on the things that are unseen but are eternal. So I just ask, Father, that as we study your word today, you would use it to encourage our hearts, to strengthen our wills, that in all things we would serve you better and love you more. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What will we say to these things? He asks really two questions. The first question there in verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? The second question in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? First question then, if God is on our side, who can oppose us? Now, Paul knows very well that there are lots of people who oppose you. You know, Paul's not giving some kind of a health and wealth prosperity gospel that if you are on God's side, everybody's going to be your friends, okay? The book of Romans is not how to win friends and influence people. The book of Romans is Paul's statement on the truth of how things are. If God is your ally, then what enemy could you possibly have that would really matter? You uh, oftentimes think about this little illustration of somebody standing behind you, you know, and you, you walk up to somebody and you think that you've, uh, you, well, let me, let me step back. I, I muddled the beginning of that. You are in a conflict with someone. You're a little kid. You're playing on the playground. You walk up to somebody and you are sure that they are about to punch you. You know, they're bigger than you are. They're tougher than you are. And they're mad. And they look at you for a minute and they stop and they turn around and walk away. And you say, whew, look at me. You know, all that uh, peanut butter and jelly eating's really paid off. I must have really developed my physique here. And then you turn behind you and you see your teacher standing behind you, towering up toward the heavens. Okay, so it wasn't me. It was the person who was with me. If the teacher's standing behind you, who on the playground is going to beat you up? That doesn't sound very theological, but let me put it to you again. If God is on your side, then who in all of creation could ever override the judgment of God? Nobody. We started out, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If somebody in your life says, you know, you're not worth anything, you, just, you, you realize the, what you've done, you realize who you are, 
You say, if God is on my side, who can be against me? Now, I want you to notice, built into that is an assumption that God is on our side. If God is for us, you ever really wrap your mind around that? I don't think that you do. I don't think you can. But you ever realize that if you were to make a list of pros and cons in your life, the people that are on your side and the people that are against you, you say, well, this person doesn't like me and this person and this person and this person. But in the column of people who are for you, you can inevitably put God. Now, what does that do with the rest of your list? Can you imagine somebody, you know, figuring out their bills? They say, okay, well, I've got a $150 electric bill, and I've got a $50 gas bill, and an $80 water bill, and I, you know, and the, the con column over here. In the pro column, well, you know, I own Microsoft. Suddenly, the rest of your budget seems a little dumb, doesn't it? All the things that you were counting against yourself don't matter in comparison to the thing that is for you. So if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, how do you know that God is for you? If God, so the first thing is, who can come between you and God? And the answer is, of course, no one. Because if God's on your side, who, who can be against you? He moves into this thought. How do you know that God's on your side? Verse 32, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? It's so simple. If God gave his son for you, what is he not going to give for you? Now, just think about if you came to me and you said, I'm going to take your baby away. I'm going to take your baby girl away. Now, that's not going to work. You know, that's not going to be a conversation that you're going to win. Okay? But let's say that through some twist, you were able to convince me that I needed to give up my child for you. And then you came back. And you said, okay, Justin, I know that you gave up Anastasia for us. But I've got something else to ask of you. Now you imagine my reaction. What else could you possibly ask of me? He said, can we have her diapers too? If I gave you my child, you can take all the diapers that you want You can even take that $40 a tub formula. You take whatever you want because in comparison to giving you my child, the rest of that is dust and smoke. Now, if you're you're a parent, you know, you can feel that emotionally, can't you? If God gave you his son, then what is God going to hold back from you? If you have uh, John Chrysostom, a famous Christian in the 3rd century, 2nd century, 300s. In the 2nd century, 325 A.D., 4th century. I did that backwards. Don't pay attention to me. In the 4th century, 325 A.D., John Chrysostom wrote, If we have the Lord, how can we doubt the chattel? (laughs) If the Lord of all creation is yours, how can you doubt that you have anything that goes with it? Now, what I want you to understand, of course, is that that's not a guarantee that you're always going to be healthy and wealthy and successful and popular and have your face on the cover of the magazine. What I mean is that spiritually, whatever you need, God is going to give to you. 
If he loved you so much that he gave his son to be tortured and killed on your behalf, is there anything that God's going to say, no, that's too much? It sounds ridiculous when I put it like that, doesn't it? But then I bet there are people here today who believe that God sent his son to die for them, who are trusting God with their eternity, but are not trusting God with victory over sin in their life right now. I bet there are some of you that if I could kind of peek into your hearts when you're praying and see the doubt and see the reservations, that I would have questions about whether you believe that God gave his son for you at all. And now you probably do. But there's this mental break where somehow we believe that God would give his only son for us, but then would withhold these other things that we need. It's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, you can have the diapers. You can have the formula. You can have the toys. You can have the hair bows. Gracious hair bows. You can have all those things. And so in comparison, it's nothing. So if you question whether or not God is for you, I have one specific incident to turn you to. (laughs) In 33 AD or 27 AD, depending on how you figure it. You could go to a certain hill outside town in Jerusalem and you could see a certain man dying on a cross. And because that's a historical fact that people there that day laid their eyes on it, there is physical, tangible proof that God is on your side. If God's for you, who can be against you? Then he he sort of rephrases the same question in a different way. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? If you are one of God's children, if you're one of the people that he has chosen for glory, and we said already those that are chosen for glory are those that he foreknew. (laughs) And so that's those that were in Christ, those that he knew would place their trust in Christ. He says, okay, if you have chosen to place your trust in Christ, then I choose you to be made exactly like him. That's pretty incredible. Next week, you you don't want to miss next week. Uh, next week we're going to be going through the whole of chapter eight and trying to all the stuff that we've put together that we've looked at in pieces. We're going to put together. We're going to do all of chapter eight next week. You don't want to miss that because sometimes our knowledge of the Bible is like Humpty Dumpty. You know, all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put it together again. We've got to see how it all fits. But there's this powerful freight train argument here. So he says. Who can put anything to the charge of God's elect? If God has said, you are justified, you are saved, you are my child, then who can come and place charges against you then? If I was uh, convicted of a crime and I appealed it up to the Supreme Court of the United States, and the Supreme Court of the United States says, no, Justin, you're not guilty, and I went home, then could anybody from the Richwood Police Department come and arrest me for something the Supreme Court of the United States has let me free from? No. If God has said you are not guilty, you are his child, who can override the judgment of God? If you've been saved, that is, if you've been forgiven, if you've come to a place in your life where you've admitted you're a rebel against God, recognized your only hope was Jesus, and asked him to change you from the inside out, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, that means admit that God is your rightful king and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So my question is, if God has said you're my child and you are my child forever, then who can come in and argue God out of that? Well, nobody. 
Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. If, if God has said, you are right, you are not guilty, who has any right to come and lay any charge against you? Who can contradict God? Verse 34, who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. See, who's the one that can condemn you? Who's the one that can say you are worthy of death? Who's the one that can say you need to be put out? It's Christ that died. Jesus has already been condemned in your place. So who can look at the one who died for your sins and say, no, that's not enough? See, we walk around with this attitude oftentimes. Well, you know, I I know that Jesus died for me. I know that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. And just in the meantime, I guess I've just got to keep on sinning. You know, I can't really do anything about this. Can anybody say that you are under the power of sin if God has said you are free from the power of sin? So you may have some kind of a habit or some kind of a sin, some kind of a problem where people say, oh, you know, you're never going to get out of that. Who has any right to override what God has said? Say, well, you know, I don't really have any choice. Do you have any right to override what God has said? I've spoken with people who have been caught up in all kinds of things, seen incredible things. You know, I, uh, one thing in particular, you know, meth. 95% of people who use meth twice get addicted, and 98% of people who get addicted stay addicted for the rest of their lives. That's, that's a lot. That means that roughly 97% of people who use meth twice stay addicted for their entire lives. But do you know what 97% is not? Some of you are not math people. I understand that because we've been doing the Financial Peace University, and I've seen some of your budgets, okay? Some, some of you are, are not good at subtracting, okay? There's some, some of you need a little help on that. Thanks. And so I, since I know that some of you don't realize that negative $200 is not zero, I'm going to really spell this out. 97% is not 100%. You need to write that down. Put that in your notes. 97% is not 100%. The fact that most people who fall into some kind of a sinful lifestyle stay stuck in it does not mean that you have to. You say, well, you know, this is just the way that I've always been. This is the way my parents were. This is the way my dad always had a temper too. Here's my question for you. If God is for you, can your dad's temper stand against you? (laughs) If God is for you, if God has said you're justified, can a drug dealer condemn you? Can a, you know, a whatever condemn you? Nobody can stand in your way. No one can take this away from you. It's Christ that died. Yea, rather, he says more than the fact that Jesus was condemned in our place so no one else can condemn us. He is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Jesus died in our place, ascended to heaven, and sits down at the right hand of God. Now, the right hand of God, I've told you this before, is not a rocking chair. Okay, Some people say, okay, Jesus went up to heaven, and now he's retired. The right hand of God's a throne. He sits down as the King of kings and Lord of lords. He sits down in his throne. And from the throne room of heaven, he says, this one's mine. This one is 
can overcome their sin by trusting in me. This one will live forever. This one is forgiven. And when in the throne room of heaven, your great high priest sits down on the great throne, who can condemn? No one. Look at this. Look at this. He switches then to our next question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? He says, okay, now what kind of circumstances can I get into? So no one can come and remove me from God's love. But what kind of things, what kind of circumstances would prove that I was out of God's love? Well, you know, what if some really terrible things started happening to me? I heard a story, a true story, about a a young lady. It was years ago, but a young lady named uh, Jamie Johnson. She was driving in a bad part of town and just tight, you know, just nervous. And she's driving, and her car stops. And she looks down and realizes that she's been so nervous about the part of town that she was in, she wasn't paying attention to her gas gauge and ran out of gas. Stuck there. She looks around and does not see, you know, think maybe there's a gas station, maybe there's a drugstore, maybe there's something. There's nothing. And so she just holds tight and waits and thinks, you know, eventually a police officer or somebody's got to drive by, but I'm not getting out of this car by myself in the middle of the night. And then she looks out of her windshield and her worst fear, there's a huge man walking toward her car. She slumps down in her seat, thinking, I'm going to hide from him. He comes up and looks in the car and starts tapping on the window. And she starts to scream. And he says something, but she can't hear him because of the screaming. So he starts to pound on the window. And she screams louder and just covers her ears. And she's praying, oh, God, please help me. God, please help me. And he walks away. And then he turns around and comes back with a bar in his hand. And she screams and she slams on the horn. And he's still yelling something at her and takes it and smashes the window. And reaches in and grabs her. And she's still praying, God, please protect me. God, please protect me. Grabs a hold of him. She kicks him and breaks his nose. And he keeps pulling and pulls her out of the car and then lets her go. And she jumps back, can't figure out what's going on when she feels the shaking and hears the horn and the train comes and crushes her car. That's a true story. Now, in your life, some of you have parked your car on the train tracks and you don't even know it. (laughs) And God sends somebody to come and get you out of that car. He sends something in your life that you think, oh, this is just terrible. God has abandoned me. God doesn't love me anymore. Can you believe what's happening to me? Can you believe this job situation I've gotten into? Can you believe this financial mess I'm in? Can you believe this substance thing I'm in? Can you believe this relationship problem that I'm having? God has just left me all alone. And God has sent that problem 
to wake you up and get you out of the car before the freight train of your sin comes and runs you over. We, you know, if, I, if you were a patient and you came in and had a, an infection in your hand, and the doctor took uh, some pain medicine and said, you know, shot you up and said, okay, you won't feel that infected hand anymore. You can go on and go home. That's a pretty lousy doctor to just deaden the pain and not treat the problem. In your life, oftentimes, the pain you experience is there to point you to the problem. It's there to push you into a solution. It's there tapping on your window, breaking the window, dragging you out, kicking and screaming, whatever it takes to get you out of there. So when you ask the question, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or persecution or distress or nakedness or peril or sword? Or persecution. Do any of these things contradict God's statement that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord. That all things work together for good for those who love God to the call for the called according to his purpose. No. What is God using tribulation, hard times, distress, and fear, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril and sword? What is God using all these things for? He's using them to shape you, to make you like Jesus. Those whom he did foreknow, he did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. So, no one can separate you from the love of God. And every circumstance you encounter is merely proof of the love of God. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. I won't spend any time there because we studied that psalm on Wednesday night just uh, three weeks ago, four weeks ago. It says, nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. We are literally super conquerors. Hooper is the, Hebrew, is the Greek word. <laughs> super conquerors. The word conqueror is uh, Nike, victory. We are super victors in all these things. Do you know why you're a super victor? Because the things that you thought were your enemies, the ones that thought they were opposing you, everything they're doing is actually pushing you more toward the goal that God has for you. All the things that seem bad, all the things that seem overwhelming, all the things that seem like, oh, this is going to shake my status with God for good are actually tools of God's love. Somebody comes and they, uh, the, the damage they try to cause actually damages themselves. You are, in whatever happens, more than a conqueror. He then goes through this list. I want to know now. You really get down to it. Okay. God, other people, or other things, and me. There's three, three characters in the drama of your salvation. God says, I love you so much that I gave my own son for you. If you'll trust in him, then nothing is ever going to take you away. Other creatures, other things that are created by God, have no authority to override the judgment of God. So finally, here's the question. What about you? Can you walk up and say, God, I don't want to have anything to do with you anymore. I would like to renounce my childhood. I'd like to renounce my adoption. Look at what he says in verse 38. 
He says, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life. He does these in pairs except for powers. Death nor life. More than once, somebody has come to me and said, you know, I know that once you're saved, you're always saved, unless you commit suicide, right? That's a pretty silly thing. Because if nothing you do can ever shake your relationship with God, then that means that not the way you die and nothing in your life. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, death and life pretty much summarize everything. Can death separate you from the love of God? No. Can your life separate you from the love of God? No. Are you more powerful than God is? I don't think you are. When God made you his child, you could not be unborn. I know that um, this, this analogy is not going to work with me, but I know there were oftentimes things that my brother did that made my parents upset. But do you know, he was still their child. There was never a point where he said, nope, you're, you're out, all done. <laughs> Neither death nor life. Then he switches it up and he says, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers. He says, the, no angels in heaven, no principalities of hell, no powers at all, no authorities at all could ever go before God and shake you. You imagine if you did something so terrible that in the throne room of God, every demon stood up and said, nope, Justin's out. There's no way that you can actually keep him. And then all the angels came up and said, no, you're right, he's out. And every power on heaven and on earth came together and they all said, you have to do something, God. You have to get rid of him. Do you know that if every angel, power, and principality in the universe came before God, they would not override God's judgment of you? See, it's not a democracy. It's a kingship. It's the kingdom of God. So you, with your life and your death, all the force of heaven in reaction to that. Look at this. Nor things present, nor things to come. There is nothing in the world now, nothing in the present, that will separate your relationship with God and change your destiny to be made exactly like Jesus, starting now and ending in eternity. Nothing in the present can change that, and nothing in the future. Nor things present, nor things to come. That tells me that there's nothing that you can ever do, and nothing that you can be doing. That's pretty incredible. Now, the past is not included here although he did a three-set uh, three before, because, of course, the past in the past, you accepted Christ. The thing that you would do that would separate you from the love of God is if you had not accepted Christ in the first place. But now that you are one of us, now that you are we, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now that you've recognized that you are a wretched sinner standing before God and your only hope is the blood of his son, now that you're there, nothing in this world now and nothing that ever could be in this world can stand before you and God. He goes just a little bit further. He says, nor height, nor depth. He says, you could go up to the highest place in heaven or the lowest pit in hell. You could go anywhere you want and you will not find something that can come between you and God, nor any other creature 
creature, any other created thing, nothing else in all of creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love that you have in God by placing your trust in Jesus, by being born again, is unshakable. I think that he's included on this list just about everything you could possibly imagine. So as we get ready to close, because we're already out of time, and I know that some of you are wondering about the line at uh, Poncho's or wherever you're... Your Your mind's wandering. But stick with me for four more minutes. If you know that nothing can change your destiny... Nothing can change the fact that you are on a collision course with the exact image of Jesus, that you are going to have all of your sin burned off, that you are going to be left with nothing except his glory. Then in your life right now, why do you allow any sin, any doubt, any discouragement to have any victory over you? You know that it's not going to. You know that it loses. You know that the solution is not your own strength holding on to God tight enough that he doesn't accidentally drop you. You know that the solution is God's love for you is pouring out unshakably, unchangeably, and that he will take you from first being forgiven to being transformed. You know that right now God is overcoming you. So all the things that you do out of fear, all the decisions that you make out of anger, or all the decisions that you make based on this world that is passing away, why don't you start doing things based on the place that you know for sure you are going? That's in every area of your life. Why do we get so caught up on the things that are passing away when the new creation is already being born? You feel the birth pangs of it. You hear the groaning of it. You experience the the birth of the new world that Jesus has started in your heart. So why don't you live like it? Our question then is really this. It comes back from verse 31. What do you say to these things? What do you say to the realization that, yes, on your own you are a sinner and your only hope is faith in Christ? That yes, by faith in Christ you've been redeemed, but that sin should not be your master. Yes, sin will continue to try to have control over you, but ultimately God will overcome it. What do you say to the fact that if you will place your trust in Christ today, that God will overcome it for you forever? Do you know how you beat sin? It's not by working harder. It's by trusting. See, sin only works by offering you something that you want. You say, well, I want security, so I'm going to sin financially. Well, if you believe that nothing can shake God's love for you, then you don't need to get your security from money. You say, well, I want this pleasure, so I'm going to sin in some of these different ways. If you believe that you get your pleasure from God, you believe that you're going to be with him for eternity, then nothing can shake you in that. You say, well, I need love. You know, so I'm going to kind of put on a front. I'm going to kind of do what other people want me to do. 
If you believe that nothing can shake the love of God for you, then you find your love in this. Whatever the sin is in your life, you know what it is. You know what your besetting sin is. You know what it is that constantly seems to pull you back. Some of you may be in it right now. You know you've set up systems in your life that keep you trapped in it. You figure out, what is it that this is offering me that God will not give me? He that spared not his own son, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? So you say, well, I'd be really scared to give this sin up. You know, it would probably ruin this relationship. It'd mess me up in this way. It'd mess me up in this way. It'd ruin, you know, ruin this financially. Emotionally, I'd be a wreck. You know, I just don't know what to do. If God is for you, if you're doing what God wants, who can be against us? It's Christ who can, it's God that justifies, who is he that condemns? It's Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who's even seated at the right hand of the Father, whoever makes intercession for us. If Jesus is on your side, then why do you not get out of these situations? If you've never trusted Christ, you've never actually come to the point where you realize, you know, I am a sinner. (laughs) I do deserve God's judgment, but I believe that Jesus gave up everything for me. If you've never come to that point, then your destiny is not this. But it can be. You come and say, God, I don't bring anything to this relationship but the mess for you to clean up. But I give you myself. I give you all that I have. And if you've done that, then you've set yourself on the path for glory that Jesus came and he died and took the punishment for your sin. We're going to have an invitation. Our musicians are going to come, but remain seated for just a second as they come. everybody for just a second to close your eyes. And I want you to really answer the question that I've already asked. What do you say to these things? How do you live in life of the glory that's been promised to you? I'm going to give you two seconds, then we're going to pray, and then you can pray. God, we come to you more grateful that if there's 